Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. In 1927, the poet T.S. Eliot wrote this poem called The Journey of the Magi. He wrote it from the point of view of one of the Magi who went and visited Jesus. And in it, he looks back at how his life changed after he met Christ. Uh, It's a great poem. I'm I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just this last stanza. And it goes like this. All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again, but set down. This set down. This. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Now, I just think that's so great. I mean, T.S. Eliot here, he's asking this really important question. What happened when Jesus arrived and the Magi found him? Was that a beginning of something or was it the end of something? Was it a birth or was it a death? And isn't that just a great question for us to reflect on at Advent? When we meet Jesus, is that the moment of our birth or is it the moment of our death? We'll we'll come back to that. This morning, we're in the third of four visitations. And in this series, what we're doing is we're preparing for the arrival of Jesus at Christmas by, by seeing how the different people involved in the story were changed by their encounter with him, by these visitations that they had. And so in the first week, we talked about Jesus' mother, Miriam. Last week, when we were together, we looked at Jesus' stepdad, Joseph. And today, we're going to learn from the Magi. And you know, just as we saw with Miriam and Joseph, a lot of our ideas about the Magi are formed more by traditions and legends than actually scripture. So for example, in in a lot of art, you'll see that there are three Magi. And that's because three is the number of gifts that they brought to Jesus. But scripture doesn't say that there were only three Magi. In fact, it's pretty unlikely that you'd travel all that way with only three people in your party. Another legend that's portrayed in art is that the, the Magi are triracial. There's one who's white, and there's one who's brown, and there's one who's black. And artists over time, they did that in order to show how the news of Jesus' birth had, had sort of spread to the known world, Europe and Asia and Africa. In fact, As time went on, later legends named the Magi. They came up with names for them. There's Melchior from Europe. There's Gaspar or Caspar from India. And there was Balthazar from Ethiopia. And a fun fact, in 1977, the TV miniseries Jesus of Nazareth, the role of Balthazar was played by James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones, who if you also know in 1977, was the voice of Darth Vader. So it looks like he's playing for both teams, in a sense. Anyway, no extra charge for that. But again, Scripture doesn't say any of that. We have no reason or no way of knowing what the ethnicity or the origin of the Magi was. 
You know, in some art, even in a famous song about the Magi, they're called kings. They're called three kings. Uh, again, scripture doesn't say that, but it, that's, it, it sort of comes from this idea that their visit was the fulfillment of certain scriptures that prophesied that the Messiah would be worshipped by the kings of the earth. For example, in Psalm 72, we read, May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all the kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. There's more in Isaiah and there's more in all kinds of other psalms and scriptures. But that doesn't mean that the ones who visited Jesus were kings. In fact, scripture doesn't call them that at all. It calls them magi. Well, one more legend claims that the Magi were this secret society from, from China. They were supposedly, they live in this cave up at the top of a mountain, and their role is to guard the secrets and treasures that were passed down to them from Adam, all the way down from Adam. And one of those secrets was the prophecy of a star child. And so one day they see the star, only it's not a star. It's actually a star in the shape of a giant shining baby, okay? And so here's some art that shows it. And, and the star baby sends them to Jerusalem and gives them food and protects them along the way from bandits. And that's the legend of the star baby. And we could go on and on. The legends and the myths, they sort of fill out what we don't know about the Magi. They make it sound like the Magi are really this very interesting, mysterious sort of secret society. The truth is kind of different. The Magi were this sort of group of astronomers and mathematicians and astrologers. They're fortune tellers, and they worked for a king. Uh, there's lots of cultures where they had Magi, like in Persia and India and China, uh, because sometimes a king, in, or, in the normal course of things, he wants to know, hey, when is the best day for me to invade my enemies? Or, which one of my wives is going to give me a son? Or, if our city is attacked, could we defend ourselves? And so the king wants to know these things, and he can't tell the future, but he believes the Magi can. And so he asks the Magi, and it's the Magi's job to tell him. And so the Magi spend their lives poring over maps, and star charts, and telescopes, and calendars. And they're looking for patterns and clues. And they're looking for signs. And, and sometimes the clues aren't in the sky. Sometimes it's not in the stars. Sometimes it's in a bowl filled with chicken guts and entrails. And the way that those guts are arranged is going to give the Magi some kind of clue about the future. Or it's not chicken guts. It's maybe bones. It's chicken bones arranged in a, bone, in a bowl in a certain way that tells the Magi what's to come. Or maybe it's neither guts nor bones, maybe it's just tea leaves and the way that they float in the teacup tells the Magi what they should tell the king. And they never really know for sure what's coming. In fact, if they get it wrong, if their prophecy, if their prediction is wrong, the king is very likely to have them killed. That's what life is like for the Magi, okay? Now try to imagine that this is your life. Your vocation is to try to like to try to solve puzzles. You're piecing together clues. You're always searching, never finding. And the king needs you to be sure. And you know you can't. You know that it's impossible. That's the vocation of the magi. It's pretty thankless, you know? It's pretty dangerous and risky and uncertain. There's very little satisfaction 
in being one of the Magi. Very little fulfillment, very little job security for the Magi. And certainly, there is no joy. No joy for the Magi. Come on. Now, try to keep that in mind as we turn to the text, because one day, sometime after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the Magi arrive in over in Jerusalem, and this is happening during the reign of King Herod, and what they ask here in verse 2, okay, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so some time has passed since the birth of Jesus. We don't know exactly how much time, uh, certainly several months, if not a year or two since the birth of Jesus. And they set out on the journey and they arrive in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 3 that Herod, on hearing this news, is disturbed. He's disturbed. Okay. He, other versions say that he's alarmed or troubled or even frightened. Well, why is he so upset? Why is he frightened and troubled and alarmed? It's because Herod and his uh, friends, his colleagues, they know that this child is a threat to them. They know it. Now, notice, the Magi came to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. And everybody thinks that that's Herod. But they meet Herod, and they're like, oh, no, 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 not, not you, not this guy. No, we meant the real king of the Jews. Where's he? We traveled a long way, but, but not for this guy. Who, who's the real, where's the real king of the Jews? Tell us where to find him. Now, Herod cannot have this. That's why he's disturbed. He can't have people treating this kid like he's the rightful king. And so, Herod gathers this secret meeting with the Magi. And he's like, guys, I'm on your side. I'm one of you. All right? I just want to worship this kid too. But first, got to tell me, where is he? Tell me, where is he so that I can go and worship him too? And all of the signs, all the prophecies point to Bethlehem. So Herod says, well, go search carefully for the child. This is verse 8. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So they set out. The Magi set out on their journey. They resume their journey and all of a sudden they see the star again. And it leads them to the place where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are staying. Are staying, And, and now uh, look at the effect that this had on them when they saw the star. Verse 10 tells us, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now that's what the New International Version says, that they were overjoyed. Other versions say that they shouted joyfully. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They were overwhelmed with joy. Another version says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were filled with joy. They were overwhelmed with joy. That's a lot of joy. Okay? You with me on that? That is a ton of joy. When the Magi see the star, there is more joy than they've ever felt. Just a ton of joy. And what comes next is on meeting Jesus, they have this sort of impromptu worship session. Okay, this, this like unplanned worship service. And in verse 11, we read that coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is beautiful. You know, we could build a definition of worship based on this scene. Because the text calls this worship. Whatever's going on here, whatever happens here in this visitation, Scripture says it's worship. Like this is what worship looks like. 
And so it's, it's worth pausing just for a minute to ask, well, what is worship? What, when is it worship? What is, what's happening in worship? And I just want to pause and make a few observations based on what happens here with the Magi. The first thing that we learn about worship is that worship humbles us, doesn't it? Worship humbles us. Now, these Magi, these are worldly, important people. They're respected in their home cultures. Yet they arrive in Bethlehem and they meet this little child and they bow down before him. That's, that's part of worship, it seems to me. Worship says, it's not about me, it's about you. I must decrease, you must increase. I must get low and you must become large. So worship humbles us. It humbles us as it like enlarges uh, and magnifies the person who's being worshipped. Okay, It humbles us. Another thing is that worship is costly. Okay, let's observe worship is costly. Look at what they offer the person that they're worshiping. They, they make this offering. They, they give these gifts in worship of gold, first of all. Now, we don't know how much gold, but uh, so like maybe it's a little chest. Maybe it's just a small sack of gold. Still, Joseph and Mary, they don't exactly like carry gold around. Like this is more money than Joseph and Mary have ever seen in their lives. And we don't even know what happened to this gold, what what became of it. But there's this gift of gold, which it just in, in, in that day, just as in our day, is super precious and valuable. Well, there's also this gift of frankincense. If you don't know, frankincense was used in worship and in, in, in prayer. Hebrews used it in worship. Other cultures did too. But it had to be imported from the Far East. So it was pretty expensive. Well, so was myrrh. Myrrh became this, it was a perfume that was used in embalming dead bodies. It comes from the the hardened sap from a tree that grows in Somalia and Ethiopia. And it's really expensive because it's so hard to collect. It's so rare. Uh, And and so here, worship is is costly to the Magi, isn't it? All of the, the gifts that they give, it actually, it costs them something. It's not simple and easy and cheap. It's, it's very costly. Um, another thing to observe about the worship of the Magi is that the gifts that they offer mean something. They're meaningful. Now, there's a reason why they chose gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These aren't just, you know, random gifts. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is the one that we just sang a few minutes ago, Joy Has Dawned Upon the World. Thank you, Brittany Ann. And in it, in the verse about the shepherds and the magi, the the song goes, Shepherds bow before the Lamb, gazing at the glory. Gifts of men from distant lands prophesy the story. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way. By his blood, he'll win us. Now, it's very likely the Magi didn't know the full significance of these gifts. Like, they didn't understand how these gifts foretell the story of the life of Jesus. But whatever the reasons the Magi had, they chose these gifts. Okay? Like, these mean something to the Magi. There's reasons why they chose these and not other gifts. And that's the kind of the thing with worship, right? Worship doesn't just happen. Worship doesn't just happen. It's a choice. It's a posture. It's a choice to, to take initiative and put yourself in a certain situation where worship happens. So worship is meaningful. Another one more thought on, on worship here is that worship changes us. It changes us. Uh, there's a painting here on the screen. This painting is by a French artist named Carl Van Loo. And in his interpretation of the visit of the Magi, the adoration of the Magi, you can, what you can see, if, you're, if you look carefully, is that as the Magi 
uh, worship Jesus and they offer their gifts, you can also see in the foreground, just off to the corner there, there's actually an idol, there's a statue that's shaped in the form of the artist himself. And you can tell that because there's a name plaque just in front, right? Do you see that? And that statue and the plaque, they've fallen and smashed on the ground. Do you see that? And what the artist wants us to see is that when, as he encounters Christ, he realizes there is a new Lord in town. He has a new God. He doesn't worship himself anymore. He can't. He's been changed. And so it's no longer, the, art, the artist no longer worships himself. He worships Jesus. And that's what worship does. Worship changes us. We're changed by who we worship. And that's why in verse 12 in our story, we read that having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now that's a really important detail. They didn't have to. They, they, they go back home they, by a, another route. They go around Jerusalem because they had been warned in a dream. Now, after they had this dream and received this warning, the Magi could have had a little chat and said, I know, but it was just a dream. We can trust Herod. Besides, he's the king. Let's go back. He seems like a nice enough guy. Let's go back and tell him where we met Jesus so that he can go and worship him like he said he would. Well, certainly there's none of that. Maybe they will say, uh, hey, I, I know the dream told us not to go back to Herod, but that is a really risky move, guys. I'm really nervous about what might happen if we don't go back and tell um, Herod what we saw. Like, think of how mad he'll be if we don't come back. Well, there's, there's none of that, right? There's none of that. There is no sense in which the Magi are in doubt over what they're supposed to do. They know exactly what Herod is going to do to the child if, they, if he meets him. And so they have a choice. It's either Herod or Jesus. And there is no contest. And so they ghost Herod and they go around Jerusalem on the way back home because they have been changed. They've been changed. Finally, all their searching and their seeking, it's finally led them to something important. Finally, something that's, that's true and holy and beautiful. And so they're filled with joy. They're filled with joy because you know what? The Magi have found, they've finally found someone worthy of their worship. And having found someone worthy of their worship, there is no going back. There's no going back. After they finally met someone who deserves their worship, they, they know they can't give it to anyone else. Now, one of the sort of fundamental claims of the Christian worldview is that everyone worships. Okay? Everyone worships. It's, it's natural. It's, it's something that we will all do. Everybody will worship something or someone. A Christian theologian by the name of Paul Tripp, he's actually also a therapist. He's, he writes a lot about this. He says, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship isn't something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everyone worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Well, that's the perspective of Paul Tripp, a theologian and, and counselor. But lots of secular folks agree on this as well. David Foster Wallace was a very popular novelist. He was actually nominated for Pulitzer Prize for his novel, and he was not a Christian. 
he said something very similar. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Folks, this is known. Like, we will all worship something. The question is, what will we worship? Whom will we worship? The question is whether the one to whom we give our worship is someone or something that actually deserves it. Well, the Magi made the right choice. They chose not to give their worship to Herod, and they gave it to Christ. And the reason is because they know who Herod is. You know who Herod is? Herod is the, is the guy who had coins made that show his face on one side, and they say, King of the Jews, on the other. That's who Herod is. Herod's the guy who had 2,000 bodyguards, and he had three of his own sons killed, one of his wives and his in-laws killed. Herod is a guy who is so desperate for the approval of his people that he canceled taxes at the same time that he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? That's the kind of king Herod is. But if we really want to know what kind of king Herod was, it's here in verse 16. Verse 16, Matthew tells us that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He's furious, exceedingly angry. Some versions say very enraged, exceeding wroth. The older versions say flew into a rage. And and then it goes on and says that he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Goodness, think of that. This may be one of the darkest events in all of scripture. Okay, Herod is so paranoid. He's so jealous of Jesus that he commits infanticide. This is infanticide on a scale that we haven't seen since Pharaoh. Now, over the years, artists have tried to show the horror of this event. It's called the Massacre of the Innocents. And dozens of artists have tried to show what it, what it was like and how horrible it was. These are children, here are some examples of that. And you can, what, you, what you're meant to feel is that these boys died because Herod refused to make room for another king of the Jews. He refuses. He cannot live in a world where somebody else is adored and he is not. And so he does what every powerful, narcissistic, jealous leader does. He gets rid of his rivals. He has them removed. That's the kind of king Herod is. But that's not the kind of king Jesus is. In fact, the next time we meet Jesus, he is a kid in the temple. He's holding his own among a group of Bible scholars, and he's showing them where they've got it wrong, and they're listening. Jesus isn't threatened by them. That's the way of Jesus. You know the way of Jesus? It's Jesus doesn't use his power to get rid of his enemies. He doesn't use his power to get rid of his rivals or the people who uh, disagree with him. He dies for them. And he says, if we want to be his followers, we're not going to kill our enemies or remove our enemies. We're going to love our enemies. So Jesus, he couldn't be more different from Herod. Jesus tells his followers about worship. He says, you know what worship is? Worship is in spirit and truth or else it's not worship. Like it can't be faked. Worship can't be coerced. Or demanded. 
Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple needs to take up their cross daily, die to themselves, deny themselves, and follow me. Like you can be alive to Herod and dead to me, or you can die to Herod and live to me, but you won't do both. Like you can't do both of those and be my disciple. That's the way of Jesus. And so it seems to me there's an important lesson to learn from the Magi, don't you think? Like before they meet Christ, the, the life of the Magi is it's unfulfilled hopes and longings and dreams. It's unanswered questions, but it's not joy. And all of that changes here. They're going to meet two kings, two people with a claim on being king of the Jews, two who receive worship, and one of them, Herod, demands it. The other, Jesus, he deserves it. But they're only going to worship one. And that means they, they have a choice to make. And so do we. We have a choice to make, and that's the lesson of the Magi. You see, in our culture, there's no shortage of, of people and things that demand our worship and our attention and our devotion, right? How much of it deserves our worship? There's endless searching and scrolling, endless clues to piece together, endless people claiming to offer a better way. How much joy, though, how much satisfaction do we find? How much fulfillment in this, in the searching and the scrolling? And folks, like that's the game. And most of the world is playing along because as long as we do, and as long as we never ask questions, Herod will protect us. Herod will keep us safe and comfortable and busy and entertained and numb and anesthetized to reality as long as we give him our worship. In fact, one of the ways that we can know that we're worshiping a Herod is because when we start to back off of Herod, things become uncomfortable. It becomes dangerous and risky. He mocks us, doesn't he? He threatens to cancel us. And that's the difference between Herod and Christ. The Herods in our lives demand our worship and they don't deserve it. Jesus is the only one who truly deserves our worship. He doesn't demand it. Let me say that again. Herod demands our worship and he doesn't deserve it. Jesus is the only one who truly deserves our worship and he doesn't demand it. And you know, I think most of us here kind of know this, right? Like, we're experienced in, in, in this, most of us. Once, once you've had a real encounter with Jesus, there's no going back to Herod. Not really. Once you know him, you know that nobody else compares. You can go through the motions. You can try to look like a Herod worshiper. You can even convince other people. And even if you convince everybody else, you'll still know the truth. You know that you can't forget Jesus. You can't unsee Jesus. You can't unsee what you've seen. Once you've tasted and seen that Jesus is better than anything else the world has to offer, there's no going back. Not really. And that's the lesson of the Magi. That's the lesson of the Magi. I, I opened with uh, part of the poem, Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot. And the poet asks whether the arrival of Jesus in our lives is more of a birth or of a death. And I sort of think it's both, you know? I think that there is a version of us that dies. There's a, a part of us that is no longer at ease here, as the poet says. It puts us at odds with our neighbors. 
and with our communities who, as the poet says, says they are an alien people clutching their gods. When we meet Jesus, it, it puts us at odds with the culture. It puts us in tension with the culture. And for some people, some people are going to find that tension so difficult that even though there's joy in Jesus, they should be glad of another death. And I'm so glad that Eliot had the courage to say so. That's profound and it's true and important, don't you think? Eliot says, I had seen birth and death, but I had thought that they were different. His point is, they're not. They're not different. They happen at once. When we meet Christ, when we choose to give ourselves to him, when we choose to transfer our worship away from Herod and on to Jesus, when that happens, all at once we die and we come alive and there is joy. There's joy. It's a joy like the Magi that rejoices with exceeding great joy. I desperately hope and pray that that lands on us this Christmas. I wish you that joy so that you never go back. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.